Good morning, everyone. It's my joy and privilege to bring a message from the scriptures this morning, and uh, I'm really grateful to Hermie for reading the passage for us. We've been looking at the letter to the Philippians written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it in lockdown, he was in prison, but we've called it Joyful Living as a series because Paul mentions joy and rejoice 16 times in these short four chapters. The title for my talk today is New Hearts, New Motives, New Lifestyles. In this passage, Paul writes to the Philippians and he talks about what it means to live as citizens of heaven, to live as those who follow Jesus. And he encourages the believers to follow his example and those like him, to stand firm in the faith. For Paul, everything changed when he met Jesus. He became a new person, a new creation in Christ, with a new heart, new motives, new attitudes, new freedoms, new ambitions, and a new lifestyle. Motives are really important because they expose our hearts. John Stott writes this, no one can truly know themselves until they have honestly asked themselves about their motives. Paul's life has changed because of Jesus' love and grace extended to him. And now he writes to his new friends, his new family, whom he loves and he longs for. And he does encourage them to stand firm. He encourages them to keep their eyes focused on Jesus, to let nothing get in the way. And he continues his letter with an appeal not to let go of what they have already received or attained. The gospel. Nothing more, nothing less and to follow the example of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and others like him. And also to beware of those who would seek to add to or water down the gospel of Jesus. And he calls those who do enemies of the cross. He reminds them again, as he did in chapter one, that their citizenship is in heaven and they are waiting for the Lord Jesus to return from there. Now, remember that Philippi was a Roman colony. In the midst of Greek-speaking Macedonia, Philippi was an outpost of Rome, a mini-Rome. And the Philippians were very proud of their Roman citizenship. They spoke a different language, Latin, not Greek. They dressed differently with Roman dress. They followed Roman customs and laws. They enjoyed the same privileges, protections and responsibilities as citizens of Rome. And their allegiance was to Caesar. And the Roman world at that time was um, promoting the worship of Caesar as Lord. Philippi was a colony of Rome. And the word colony or colonial is not really popular today. Just a few weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, the Queen's picture was taken down from the common room of an Oxford college because it was considered by some of the students to represent colonial history. 
Colonialism to many speaks of the power of empires who expanded their influence across the world, often subduing, ruling, exploiting other nations, other countries, other peoples for their own benefit. Of course, not everything that colonialists brought was bad. I'm reminded of the famous Monty Python sketch, what did the Romans ever do for us? All right, apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what did the Romans ever do for us? And we must remember that many Christians who were sent by the Lord into these new places brought spiritual blessing, healthcare, education, the gospel of Jesus. And just as Philippi was a Roman colony in a Greek world, Paul says that the church is a Christian colony, is a colony of heaven, an outpost of heaven, if you like, in a pagan world. Surrounded by pagan beliefs and practices, they were to stand out, to be different, to be like Jesus. So Paul refers to them as citizens of heaven. Philippi was a colony of Rome with a mandate to Romanize the region, to influence the region for Rome. The church, says Paul, is an outpost of heaven, a colony of heaven to bring the good news of Jesus to be the living outworking of Christ's love in their environment and communities, to bring Christ to a lost and broken world to be a prophetic missionary people, pointing to the one who is the hope of the world, the savior of the world. And we are not waiting to be airlifted to heaven, but we are to live for Jesus where we are until he returns. It's why Jesus taught us that amazing prayer, the disciples' prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We await a savior from heaven the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are to live for him here on earth. And that will mean challenges. It will mean opposition. It will mean persecution at times, ridicule at times. But also there will be things that we need to be wary of, to watch out for. Paul says there are enemies of the cross. They will be from within and without. Paul has already mentioned one group in previous verses in chapter 3, those who advocated legalism, those Judaizers. They would be the ones who would say the cross is not enough, that you need to add religious rites or performance to the cross. And Paul says, no, not a bit. He even calls them dogs and mutilators, as you will remember that relating to circumcision. But Paul wants to make it clear that Christ is all we need for salvation. Nothing more, but nothing less. We cannot earn our salvation by good works. Salvation is not dependent upon our performance, or we would all be lost. All we need is Jesus, and he has done it all for us. He was the only one who has kept the law in its entirety, who lived a sinless life, a perfect life, but he gave it up for us, a sacrifice. 
So the gospel is free for us, but it cost Jesus his life. But he conquered death in the resurrection. Paul here addresses the other enemy of the cross that he sees. Those who would play down sin, belittle sin, which means they would belittle the cross. Those who preached license. Who would say that the cross meant nothing. They would detract, take away from Christ's sacrifice. They would live in a way that would make the cross mean nothing. And they would scoff at the attitude of Christ who made himself nothing. Paul says that those who follow Jesus are to be different, to live in a worthy manner of the gospel. And the church down through the ages has faced these two temptations, these distractions again and again, either to add to the cross with religion, legalism, or to subtract from the cross, to live for self, license. We remember that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus never once compromised on sin, but he was known as a friend of sinners. He came to bring freedom from sin, to pay the price for sin, to reunite us in a relationship with a holy God, something we could never do on our own by our own works and also to give us a new life. Paul affirms this in all his letters. Faith in Jesus is all we need. And Paul believes that when we understand or comprehend or appreciate the truth of the cross and the reality of the resurrection and the certainty of Jesus's return, we will never be the same again because we have new hearts, new motives, and a new lifestyle. And our ambition, like Paul, is to know Christ and to follow him and to live for him. And here, Paul weeps. He says he says these things with tears because he is weeping for those who are lost. These enemies of the cross, he says their destiny is destruction. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 5 would say that once we were all enemies of God because we were rebellious and had turned away from him. But Jesus is the way back. And these people, whether consciously or unconsciously, deny the cross because they deny their need of Jesus and the importance of the cross. Look at the three ways Paul describes such peoples. The first is, he says, their God is their stomach. Their lives revolve around their appetites, not just food, although that could be it, but other appetites that they seek to satisfy. They recognise no need of a saviour. They recognise no authority higher than their own self-reliance or self-governance. They're driven by their desires. They live to please themselves, not live for Christ. And in that way, they deny the cross. They are lost, says Paul. Now, Paul doesn't pick on any particular sin. He just raises the warning, and I think he was really wise to do that. We remember, as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And our treasure is Jesus. Secondly, he says their glory 
is in their shame. This is a total rejection of Christ's standards, of his holiness and godliness. The prophet Isaiah, who lived 600 years before Jesus, saw in his own day, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, woe to those who call evil good. Even Jesus um, recognized those who chose darkness over light. John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Their glory is in their shame. They boast when they should blush. We see this on an international scale, evil pretending to be good. Our heart breaks over the death cults that operate in our world that just seek to bring destruction, violence to this world, pretending that it's for God. We see this in society and sometimes on an individual or personal level. You may know that I've had the privilege of leading Alpha courses in prison and I've met some of the most contrite people in prison who know that they're sinners and are so grateful for a loving God who forgives them. But I also have met people who are, have been proud of their sins, proud of their crimes, boasted in their crimes as if it was something to be proud of. We all know people who boast in things that they really perhaps ought to be ashamed of. I remember before I was a Christian, I would uh, hang around with people who would boast about how much they had drunk and how drunk they were at a certain party or thing, or things they had gotten away with, or even their sexual exploits. Their glory is their shame. They boast when they should blush. It reveals no fear of God and no appreciation for the cost of the cross for our salvation. Now, I think every generation is tempted to think that no period in time has been like their own in rejecting the standards of God. But I guess every generation thinks that. I read these words this week uh, from a pastor in the 18th century complaining of the degradation in London, the binge drinking and gambling and the widespread decline in church attendance. And in that moment of the 18th century, God raised up people like John Wesley and George Whitfield and thousands were converted. Robert Rakes began the Sunday school movement, reaching 300,000 children within five years and others like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury brought a difference to the world in which we live through their commitment to Christ. And we are praying for such a similar move of God again in our own time. As citizens of heaven, our standards and authority come from Christ and our primary allegiance is to him. Not that we are perfect, we're not. And Paul himself testifies to this. He has not been made perfect, but he presses in to be more like Jesus. Yes, we may fail at times, but our motivation is to live for Jesus. And the third description, their minds are set on earthly things. They think that this life is all there is. This is not such an obvious rebellion against the cross, 
But Paul says they too are enemies of the cross because they are short-sighted. They believe that there is nothing more than this life. No judgment, no eternal life, no heaven or hell, no new creation. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. No, says Paul, not a bit of it. Whether consciously or unconsciously, such a view makes them enemies of the cross. That's why Paul is in tears, because they are lost. We, says Paul, are citizens of heaven. And every church is a colony of heaven. And we await a saviour from there. This passage ends with these wonderful words, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul longs for the second coming of Jesus. He expects the second coming of Jesus. But wise as he is, he puts no dates on it, no millennial debates, just this certainty that he knows that Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes, he will transform our lowly bodies. These bodies that fail, these bodies that still sin, even though we don't want to, even though we are citizens of heaven and we want to live for Jesus, we're not yet perfect, but when he comes, we will be because we will be like him. And our new bodies will not age and not decay and not be subject to sinful desires. What a hope we have in Jesus. And so Paul urges the believers to live as that colony of heaven, to influence their communities for Christ. And he says, don't get blown off course. Don't get sidetracked by either the religious legalism or those who would promote a license. Both belittle the cross and the cost of our salvation. Follow my example, says Paul. Copy, copy me and those like me who keep Jesus center of all things. Remember, Paul considered everything rubbish. All the things that in his life that he could have been proud of, he said, I consider them rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. His first allegiance was to Jesus. And with that in mind, we are encouraged to live as that colony of heaven, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, awaiting and expecting his return. What does it mean for us? We will work that out day by day to live for Jesus, be ambassadors for Jesus, be missionaries for Jesus day by day in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. Jesus called it being salt and light. And like Paul, not that we have already obtained all this, but we press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of us. We have new hearts, new motives, and new lifestyles, not molded by the world, but molded by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So stand firm, says Paul, and we hear his voice speaking to us through the scriptures again. Stand firm, live for Jesus. And we pray that in the way that we do that, we might influence others who might come to know the Saviour for themselves. God bless you in this coming week 
as you live for him. Amen.